0: Playing a Keith Green song. Many of us remember Keith Green, those have been around a few years. Killed in an airplane crash, July 1982. Gordon and I have a special memory of Keith Green. Uh, the ORU student body, I think it was called the Senate, invited Keith Green to come to Oral Roberts University and minister on the campus, but they had not received permission from the administration. And so Keith Green arrived and was denied the privilege of ministering on the ORU campus. So it was set up that at Bel Air Christian Church every afternoon. We opened up the chapel, and Keith Green ministered there every afternoon for two or three hours, and ORU students flooded the chapel. But uh, before those meetings, you'd always have a time of prayer and discussion and in our fellowship hall. We were sitting in the fellowship hall one day and Gordon Johnson Gainborough came in, and Keith, if you were around him at all, he's one of the most abrasive individuals you ever met. Uh, He was very tactless, uh, if you understand what that term means. lack (laughs) tact. I think I just coined a word. But um, anyway, he was just so abrasive, and after the thing was over, he said, well, it's over, and Jonathan Gainsborough started to say something, and Keith immediately said, get out. And he threw him out of the meeting. Then he threw Gordon out of the meeting because Gordon had come in with Jonathan. (laughs) Uh, But you know, in the final two years of his life, the ultimate thrust of his ministry was to encourage young people to spread the gospel to unreached peoples who had never heard the word of Jesus Christ. Uh, Just before his death in July 1982, he issued uh, a pamphlet, Why You Should Go to the Mission Field. His very last song was, Jesus Commands Us to Go. And in that pamphlet, he wrote this. There's a little command in the Bible, and that little command says, Go ye into all the nations, and preach the gospel unto every creature, and make disciples of men. The world isn't being won today because we're not doing it. It's our fault because this generation of believers is responsible for the generation of souls on the earth. Nowhere in the world is the gospel so plentiful as it is in the United States. I don't want to see us stand before God on that judgment day and say, but God, I didn't hear you call me. You don't need to hear a call. You are already called. In fact, if you stay home and don't go into all the nations, you better be able to say to God, you call me to stay home, God. I know that is a fact. Well, those are stirring words, aren't they? <laughs> uh, they're words that might stir the juices of Tulsa Christian Fellowship because we as a church are called to the distant fields of harvest. I'm sure all of you know that Tulsa Christian Fellowship was born as a result of the Ministry Among the Hippies and the Restless Ribbon, and when the Restless Ribbon dried up, for a while it seemed TCF was sort of floundering with purpose for existence. For a while it became kind of an event center. Anyone who was a speaker of any note always spoke at TCF. And In the 1980s, I remember we were sitting talking about what are we supposed to be and do as a church? Uh, we took account. as I recall there were 986 churches in Tulsa at that time, and as we prayed and discussed this, the conclusion we came to was that God did not intend to duplicate the very same thing 986 times. And so if God really calls the church into existence, and man didn't start it, but God really called it into existence, He did so for a purpose and... Now that things had changed in Tulsa, did TCF still have a purpose? And in prayer it was decided indeed that the purpose was world evangelism. And in 1996, when that was challenged, that truly became firmed up. And you know, just look at these flags. Isn't it something how God has used this little small church... To touch that many nations of the world. And this missions map, it, just, it really its astounding to realize that we have a part in all of that. You know, this morning as I thought about the word to bring, I realized that those of us who preach at TCF are very fortunate in that we speak to a biblically literate congregation and we just don't have to explain everything. Now but let me say this in spite of that wonderful pamphlet that Keith Green wrote this morning, I want to present another side of the missionary coin. David as you well know had been anointed by God to be the king of Israel. Now Saul was the king, but Saul had been disobedient to God, and God said, I'm taking the throne away from Saul, and he had Samuel anoint David. But Saul wanted to cling to the throne. And so on more than one occasion he tried to kill David, and then pursued David with an army. At one point there was a priest that had been friendly to David, and Saul had all the priests killed was doing his best to find David and kill him so that he, Saul, would not have to give up the throne. David fled to uh, a group of caves near the uh, Dead Sea. In time, this came to be called the Stronghold. And then, surprisingly, as he was there, groups of men began to come to him, men who uh, Second Samuel, 1 Samuel 22 describes them. Everyone that was in distress, everyone that was in debt, everyone that was discontented, gathered themselves unto him. And he became a captain over them, and there were with him about 400 men. And in time, that number grew to 600 men and their families. And for a season, they tried to find a home of some kind, they Wandered into this wilderness, they wandered into that forest. And finally, through circumstances, which is a story in itself, they began to occupy the town of Ziglag. And Ziglag then became their home. And from Ziglag, David would leave his uh, brigands, shall we say, forth into the various places where the enemies of Israel lived. And they would capture these cities and they would loot these cities. And they would take the booty and give it to the towns in the southern part of Judah. And so in time, the citizens of these towns became loyal to David rather than to Saul. On one occasion, David and his men were several miles north of Gath. Now this was about a three days walk from Ziglag to this location. And when the reason for their being there ended, they walked that three days back home Worn out, having carried their tents and the other military baggage, they arrived weary and were stricken with what they saw. The town of Ziglag had been burned. The women and children, all their cattle had been carried away. And they began to grieve deeply and mourn, and some of them began to shake their fist at David and say, this is all your fault. You see, there were discontented people in this crowd. David faced, therefore, two crises. One, discontent among his men who were accusing him, and secondly, what shall we do? He sought God, and God said, Pursue the Amalekites, who have looted your city and burned it and taken your families. Immediately, they grabbed up all their military baggage and began heading uh, southeast toward where they thought the Amalekites had gone. They came to the brook Beor after about 15 miles, and they were worn out. Remember, they had walked three days, and now hurriedly, with all their baggage, rushing forward. And, And when they got to the brook, Beor, there were 200 so worn out they just couldn't go another step. And so David said, let's leave all the baggage here, drop the tents, drop all of our extra military weapons, leave everything here, and you 200 stay by the stuff. And the other 400 pursued the Amalekites, they defeated them. They rescued their wives and children without harm. They got back all of their cattle, all the booty that the Amalekites had taken. And then they started back home. And when they came to the brook Beor, here were the 200 who had remained with the stuff. And Scripture says, depending on what version you're reading, some baseless fellows among them said, you know... We don't want to give anything to these guys that stayed by the stuff. Let them have their wives and children and get away from us and go into the desert and fend for themselves. David said, no, God gave us the victory. We did not defeat the Amalekites because we are such great soldiers. God gave us the victory. And then he said this to these men, Who will hearken unto you in this manner? But as his part is that goeth down to the battle, so shall his part be that tarrieth by the stuff they shall part alike. And it was so from that day forward that he made it a statute and an ordinance for Israel under this day. Now if you're reading the NIV it says the man who stayed by the supplies. NASB the one who remained with the baggage. NAB the one who stays by the baggage. New King James who stays by the supplies. New Living Translations. Those who guard the equipment. Young's Living Translation. Him who is abiding by the vessels. I like King James on this passage. <laughs> it's more colorful and has strong Anglo-Saxon terms. He who tarrieth by the stuff. (laughs) I like that. This morning, I want to stir our awareness of the essential, essential ministry of staying by the stuff. We're not going to talk about the needed ministry. We're not going to talk about the excellent ministry, but the essential ministry of staying by the stuff. And that ministry is essential. Now, David didn't originate this principle. First time we see it is in the book of numbers. Numbers chapter 26 you see you see Israel mustered as the army of God. And then in chapter 27 you see Moses turning over the command to Joshua. Numbers 28 to 30 God confirms the fact that Israel is his army and he does this through sacrifices. Then we come to chapter 31 near the end of Moses' life near the time when God is going to call Moses to the mountain where Moses will die. But God said before that, I have one more battle for you to fight, Moses. One more battle in which you will lead the troops. And this is a battle in which I want you to exterminate the Midianites. More than once in Scripture... We see God choosing to exterminate a people because they have become so wicked that they are beyond reclamation. And if they're allowed to remain, their wickedness will pervert the area, perhaps the whole world. We see that in Genesis chapter 6 when the flood took place and only one righteous family remained. We see it in Genesis with the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, Genesis 19, in which uh, the Lord, through an angel, said to Abraham, I'm going to go destroy these cities. Remember, Abraham said, if there's 50, will you, 50 righteous men, will you do it? On the way down. Finally, the only righteous family, Lot and his family, was plucked out and God destroyed those five cities of the plain. They were so given to wickedness, they were beyond reclamation. Genesis thirteen three says, The men of Sodom were wicked and sinners before the Lord exceedingly. God says, I'm exterminating them. And that was also true of the Midianites. And so God said, Moses, exterminate the Midianites. Man, woman, child, leave nothing alive. Very successful battle they fought against the Midianites. They returned victorious and listened to the spoils. 675,000 sheep, 72,000 cattle, 61,000 donkeys, uncounted stores of gold, Dare we mention mentioned 32,000 virgins, but anyway, that was what they brought back from fighting the Midianites. And at this time, the first time we see God establishing this principle, Numbers 11, or rather 31, 26 and following, he said those who go to battle, those who stay by the stuff, will share equally in the victory. It must be divided among them. Another example would be Joshua 22.8, we'll not bother to refer to that one, but the same thing happened. But what these episodes show us is that there is an essential ministry of tearing by the stuff, and that's what we want to ponder this morning, the essential ministry of. Of tarrying by. Now I know I'm preaching to the choir today because that's who's here. Do you think about this, now from my perspective in this church, we have left-wingers, we have right-wingers, and middle-of-the-roaders. <laughs> from your perspective, it's the other way around, isn't it? <laughs> so who's right? Number one, those who tarry by the stuff are essential because they protect and preserve what has been gained? Revelation 3.2, the church at Sardis is exhorted to strengthen that which remains. Think about this. Hostile tribes roam the Negev. Wouldn't they have been delighted if they would have come to the brook Beor and found all this stuff that David's army had left behind so they could quickly pursue the Amalekites. But they couldn't had they come upon it because there were 200 warriors protecting the stuff. Those of us who are called to protect the stuff were charged with the ministry of protecting what's been gained. Think about this. If David had left a healthy contingency of warriors in Ziklag when he was three days' journey away north of Gath, the Amalekites probably could not have burned the city, looted the city, carried off the inhabitants, but the city was left unguarded. One of the essential ministries of elders is guarding the stuff. Paul wrote to the Ephesian elders, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit is, has made you overseers, shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. How valuable is the church? Look at that. He bought it with the blood of Jesus. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves men will arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away disciples after them. Evangelists are hunters who go into the spiritual wilderness and attack the wolf pack. Elders, however, are not. Temperamentally and spiritually, elders are protectors rather than raiders. Elders abide with the flock. They tarry by the stuff and fight off the wolves that come against the flock. And my, that's a ministry so needed today because of all the perversity in our culture that is beginning to attack the church and trying to change the church. I tell you what, when I sit with the six men who are the TCF elders and I look around that circle, I realize that of all the churches with which I relate, I know of no group of men that exceeds the quality of these six men. We are fortunate to have these shepherds in this body. Praise God. You know, it's wonderful to see the era in which we are, which Americans are just sending missionaries everywhere. But as we begin to strive to win the nations of the world, are we going to lose our own nation? We will if we don't take seriously the essential ministry of tearing by the stuff, requires stewardship, it requires caring for the assets, it requires being wary of the wolves that would seek to ravish the flock of God. Those who tarry by the stuff also make possible an army for the future. Some years ago when my role at TCF was to manage the church's business, we used to have stocks given by a wealthy individual, and I'd watch the stock market. I'd sell them at certain times. We had CDs. At that time, CDs made good interest. They don't anymore. But one time a banker came by. He said, you know, I'd really like to know about your church. Who are you? And I said, you know, a good way for you to understand it is this. We are not a savings account in which we try to hoard assets. We are a checking account. And our prayer is that every year God will take out as many as come in. And at that time, that really was my prayer at least. And I think in a way, maybe he's taken out more to come in. But uh, what a blessing to be a part of a body that isn't a hoarder, but rather a channel through which God can accomplish his ends. Paul left Tempty and Ephesus a terrier by the stuff. This is a passage that was very important when TCF was busy in discipleship captivity. 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy 2 You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also the coming generation. We must be very faithful, brothers and sisters in imparting this mission, vision, to each generation. Think about this. You know, the stewardship of children is a very serious responsibility. Where are the next elders? Where are the next evangelists? Where are the next Christian citizens? Where are the godly businessmen? Where are going to be Christian carpenters and so on? You know, a bunch of my hope are above our head, those people who make noise every Sunday when we're trying to preach. But you know, if we do our job well as parents and our job well as a church, just think about releasing that mob, spirit-filled, upon the world. And we're already seeing it, aren't we? We've had people going to the mission field that years ago were in the cradle roll. Praise the Lord, that's true. Think of Andrew, who we had this morning. That's an example, isn't it? What a blessing. So we must remember that really the most important thing that we're working with is not buildings, but souls. We also, those of us who tarry by the stuff, are God's source of supply for the warriors. Now, the last time I spoke, I talked about World War II, but I've tried to think of an analogy that really fits who we are as a church, and I can only go back there once again. As a boy, in my teen years, during World War II, you could walk up and down the streets of Muskogee, Oklahoma in any neighborhood, and house after house after house, in the window there hung a small banner. The banner was about a foot high, maybe 10 inches wide, blue border down each side, and in the middle a big blue star. Every blue star banner represented a member of that household that was in uniform and usually fighting on the front lines for our nation. After a while, as you walked up and down the streets, you noticed those blue stars vanishing and in their place, gold stars. Every gold star represented someone who had died in the service of our country. The last thing any of us wanted was that our troops would be killed or failed to win a battle because we had not supplied what they need to fight. So we had paper drives. I can remember in the hot summer Oklahoma heat in a military truck that was brought over from Camp Gruber Going up and down the streets, people would pile newspapers on the curb. You'd get filthy as a hog <laughs> grabbing them and piling in the truck, some in the truck stacking. Did that continually continually really summer and winter. Anytime you opened a can of food, you didn't show throw the can away. You took it to at Alice Robertson Junior High and threw it on the scrap pile valuable things we had that were made of metal, we threw on that scrap pile. I can remember my uncle had a brass uh, missile from a bullet, really, well, whatever, horror, horror, howitzer's fire, from World War I. It had a timer on it, so it was supposed to explode at a certain time. It had failed. He had it from World War I. It was a, a treasure, solid brass. I can remember picking that up and throwing it on the scrap pile because we were supplying what our men in the field needed so they would not fail. If you had more than five tires, four on the wheels and one in the trunk, the rest were confiscated because rubber was hard to come by. Thirty-four miles an hour was the speed limit all over the nation. If you you had to get a ration stamp to get gasoline, if you got an A stamp, which is what most people had, that meant three to four gallons a week for gasoline, and those were the days when a car that had 20 miles a gallon was unheard of. It was much less. Shoes, sugar, bicycles, typewriters, everything was rationed, but we did not complain because we were supplying the troops on the front, and they could not fight if we did not supply them what they needed. I remember one time down Gibson Street, (laughs) I saw a car without any tires driving along on the metal rims. It was noisy as it crossed the railroad track (laughs) near Summit Street and Gibson Street. Paul was overwhelmed when the Philippian church sent him an offering by Epaphroditus, Philippians 4, 10 to 14. You know, we're in a day in which we, there's a lot of uh, to do made about tent-making missionaries. But the reality is that most missionaries, even tent-making missionaries, cannot fully support themselves. And that's why... In our elders' meeting, and sometimes here on Sunday morning, we pray for people to have jobs. That's not the only reason. We also pray for people to get promotions. We pray for people to prosper so that in this small body we will have the assets that we can send to our warriors who are on the front lines of piercing the darkness and you know the darkness isn't just where there are minarets the darkness is everywhere thank god we have these nations where there is darkness that are being touched by those whom god has drawn out from this body there's a man in the church i'll not mention his name as sat with some years ago not long before he died man who was very generous in his support of missions. He said, you know, my wife has done without many of the fineries of life because we wanted to support missionaries. He said, we could have afforded steak, but we ate ground beef so we could support missionaries. There's a family in this church, again, I don't want to embarrass them, but there was a time... They cleaned office buildings at night and every penny they got from doing that was given to missions. Praise God that that's the heart of this body to sacrifice, to do without. It's, it's, it's a serious stewardship. Uh, if I need clarinet reeds, should I buy them or give the money to missions? Don't judge me how I decide that. But, and we must not judge each other but these are serious decisions we make as we have, you know, I, I don't own a thing, neither do you. You may think you do, but you don't. It all belongs to God. And the Lord in his generosity has said, reach into my cash drawer and take what you need, but please try not to take out more than 90%. Isn't that generous? <laughs> That's the way our Lord would have it. Those who tarry by the stuff, of course, must be intensely Interested in and committed to the mission. We'll be interested in how goes the battle, not out of sight, out of mind. Paul and Barnabas on that first missionary trip. When they got back, they gathered the church together, according to Acts 14, 26, 27. They gathered the church together and gave them a report of everything that happened along the way. Don't you know that church wanted to hear And rejoiced to the Lord for all that had been accomplished on that trip. Again, in World War II, everybody read the newspaper. Because the newspaper had daily reports, how goes the battle. There would be maps showing battles. There would be telephotos, in which sometimes you'd get a picture. Radio broadcasts from the battle zone. Life Magazine, you, you can't imagine what Life Magazine was like. Life Magazine was the equivalent of today's television. We we would get Life Magazine, there were all these photographs of what was going on, wonderful, and then some folks who could afford it went to the picture show once a week and there was always RKO News, and RKO News was, was movie uh, pictures of, What was going on? Nettie Hudson one day was in a movie and there's RKO news and she saw some military men, marines boarding a ship and she spotted Willard. And so on one occasion, if I understand correctly, they emptied the theater so she could watch it again all by herself. Intensely interested in how the battle is going. Listen, when we get an email from a missionary, We're not just getting a chatty letter. We're getting a communique from the front lines. And, oh, I hope that when we get those, and with a prayer request, we don't throw it in the trash, but we immediately stop and intercede for that which that missionary has laid before us. We think of Paul's constant plea for prayer constantly as he spoke to the churches. Now next month, starting next Sunday really, we're going to hear some inspiring teachers. We pray that our Lord will speak to some folks about going to the battle becoming warriors. But let me say this, if you sense that you're being called to the front line, be sure God is calling you, and not just a gifted recruiter, because I'll tell you, you can sell it. But if you sense you're being called to stay by the stuff, be sure Jim Garrett is not a gifted recruiter. (laughs) Be careful that you're hearing from God. But unless God has called you to go to the battle, I disagree with Keith Green on this, (laughs) Unless God has called you to go to the battle, you're called to tarry by the the stuff and to be that logistics, that supply, that prayer warrior, that raising up of future warriors, which is a marvelous ministry. But then you know those verses we noted earlier are so beautiful because they tell us that those who in obedience tarry by the stuff and those who in obedience go to the front lines share equally in the reward for faithfulness. Isn't that beautiful to think about? But as his part that goeth down to the battle, so shall his heart be that tarrieth by the stuff. They shall have part alike. Someday, we stand before God. And those of us who tarry by the stuff, if we have been faithful in preserving the ground that's gained, if we have ensured that there will be an army for the future, if we've been the source of supply for those on the front lines, if we have remained intensely interested in the battle and poured out prayers to God for those who are piercing the darkness, we shall share equally. With those who are on the front lines. Well done, good and faithful servant.